0: Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that crusades against butt flattening jeans. I'm your host, Amanda. Today, we're going to continue our conversation with denim expert Michelle. I'm going to be honest, <laughs> I thought our more than three hours of recording could somehow magically be distilled into two hours, but alas, that was but a pipe dream. We talked about so much great stuff that I couldn't go hard with the cutting. So, Today's episode is actually part two of three. Today, we're sort of meandering all over the place from the difference between, quote, premium denim versus less expensive options, to the challenge of sizing, to a special cameo from Uniqlo. I mean, we're all over the place. I'll have more facts and info about the denim industry for you at the end of the episode. I wanted to spend some time today discussing a recent New York Times Magazine article entitled Sweatpants Forever. If you haven't seen it, don't fret. I'm going to share the link in the show notes. It was also featured on The Daily this weekend, which is a podcast. So if you're more of an audiobook kind of person, you should also check that out. Once again, I'll share the link in the show notes. I've read the article multiple times and listened to it. And the listening to it part was so surreal. You know how you create voices in your mind that you hear when you're reading? It was so different. Kind of like, oh, it it was disconcerting. Anyway. My initial concern was that this article would be about a sad yet comfy permanent shift into sweatpants. I mean, I felt frightened. I think this is a good time to tell you that I wear a dress every single day, even during quarantine. I've always been a big fan of a diaphanous maxi, a caftan, some sort of midi dress. So it's really not that much different from my ordinary life, whatever that was, because I can barely remember it now. And yes, there is a lot of convo about sweatpants in this article. I'm going to skip over that for the most part, so you should definitely read the article or listen to the Daily to learn about Scott Sternberg and his brand, Entire World. It's very interesting, and it's an important part of that story. Really, this article was about how the fashion industry is broken, how it got there, what's happening now, etc. In April, which feels like 9 million years ago, (laughs) clothing sales fell 79% in the United States. In June, they bounced back somewhat, but they were still lower than last year. As we've talked about in the past, that year-over-year comp, that growth each year, is so important to the fashion industry. Apparel sales grew 6% in July, but they remained 21% lower than the previous year. So that's not good for those retailers. And there's concern that August and September will be substantially more grim with one in five adults unemployed right now and the end of the expanded unemployment benefits, which I mean, for my family, has been rough. Multiply that by millions upon millions of people and you start to see possible impending economic doom. Furthermore, going back to school has shifted into logging on to school. So analysts are expecting significant sales misses in school clothing, dorm decor, and school supplies. And... Retailers bought this stuff, like what's going to happen to it? We've discussed in the past that 75% of clothes purchased in the United States come from off-price stores like TJ Maxx and Ross. And every time I say or read this, it blows my mind. It doesn't stop blowing my mind. I've been stunned to imagine all of those other retailers, brands, department stores, Amazon – clamoring for the remaining 25% of those sales. I mean, imagine competing for those sales, especially when they're also down 21% to the previous year and that year was considered to be an intensification of the retail apocalypse. I mean, this this leads to so much waste. Either retailers can't move through their inventory and then they have to destroy it or burn it, Or they sell it to us at rock-bottom prices, tricking us into buying more than we would ever wear or need. And then we send barely worn clothing and other things to the landfill. In this New York Times article, the writer Irina Alexander focuses on high-end Fashion Week brands, the sort of designers and brands that you see in the pages of Vogue. In fact, Anna Wintour is interviewed for the piece – But I would say that the issues Alexander calls out in this article also trickled on down to the mass retailers and brands, causing an even more epic crisis because the scale is so much bigger. It all begins with the 2008 financial crisis. And yes, fast fashion was already picking up momentum at this point, but the worst was yet to come. As more and more Americans found themselves struggling financially, two things happened. First, everything that had delivered that July-August for fall sales went to almost an immediate markdown. And not just luxury brands and premium designers, we're talking the whole industry. Deals, 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 my friends. And people bought it. This led to two really disastrous shifts that sort of set the tone for where we are right now. First, when that same period rolled around in 2009, a year later, retailers were like, shit i got to comp those sales from last year's blowout clearance event. Once again, that year-over-year sales comp, that increase in sales with each year, is a cornerstone to how this industry works, just nonstop growth. So, okay, going back to, you know, it's 2009. The economy was still in tatters, so that meant another big, huge sale with even deeper discounts and more inventory involved. Because once again, got to show that year-over-year growth. This turned into a cycle of near constant markdowns. I mean, think about it. Things stayed at full price for less time. Even in my part of the industry, which was definitely not premium, but not completely fast fashion yet, we saw a shift from maybe giving a product 10 weeks, you know, close to three months of full price selling before marking it down to marking stuff down like a month later. That carries forward to today. So, customers became trained to buy stuff on sale. I mean, they waited until it was a deal, and so soon nothing sold at full price. Retailers began to anticipate this by buying things that were cheaper and marking them up more. You know, you still got to keep that profit as high as possible, right? basically as a buyer, my margin target would increase each year. So maybe in 2008, it was 70%. I hit that. I mean, I had no choice if I wanted to you know, get a raise or a promotion. So then the next year it became 71%, and then 72% the year after that, and so on. And so by the time we hit 2020, we're looking at an 84 or 85% margin, meaning something that costs $15 to make, Would be offered at a full price of $100, primarily with the expectation that it would rarely sell at full price. And in fact, and I maintain this to this day, in today's current retail industry, you would be horribly mistaken to buy anything at full price from a big retailer because the value's just not there. So how did buyers keep the costs down? Well, I mean, we cut into the quality. We shifted gradually from natural nice fabrics to polyesters and weird blends. We cut Every penny we could from using cheaper trims like plastic zippers and extra cheap buttons to removing pockets, cutting the volume out of the skirt, shifting to side zippers instead of a full back zip and so on. I mean, we've talked about some of these clothing nightmares. Our production partners pushed on factories for lower and lower manufacturing costs, meaning that people making the fabrics, dyeing and washing the garments, doing the sewing, manufacturing the trims, these people all got paid less and less for more and more work. This makes me think of something that never ceases to devastate me. The idea that all those clothes that H&M and other retailers burn and destroy, human beings worked long, long hours in questionable conditions, being paid pennies, possibly endangering their health and well-being, all for it to end up burned. And that's just so sad. Like, I mean, sad is an understatement. So this cheapening of the industry was one result of the 2008 financial crisis. But there's more. Let's go back to that first clearance sale that begat more and more clearance sales and promos. Bogo jeans, buy more, save more online promos, two weeks of Black Friday. Another thing happened. So much product was being sold that designers, brands, and retailers needed to produce more. Pre-2008, designers and labels produced two collections per year, fall, winter, and spring, summer. The idea was like, okay, we'll deliver fall and winter product in August, September. It will sell at full price until after Christmas. We'll mark down what's left. And in late January, we'll deliver the spring, summer stuff. That will remain at full price until, say, Memorial Day. And then we'll slowly begin to mark it down through July. This is how it used to be that didn't work anymore in this era of deals, deals, deals. Despite the shitty economy, as it recovered, more and more stuff was being sold. So retailers put pressure on designers and brands to produce more stuff. Suddenly, there were four seasons of fashion. Two super bizarre seasons were invented. One was pre-fall, which was a nebulous June-July delivery period where really, we should all just be beginning to buy our summer clothes, right? And then there was resort, which was it still really gets my goat it's a strangely sadly wistful delivery of summer product in December that just chills out I mean some people go on vacation but like how many people go on vacation and at first it was just the true high-end designer brands that adopted this but it spread pretty fast to the regular old retailers too this article also says that the digitization of fashion shows sped up the calendar and I believe that. I mean, The internet has given us immediate gratification. We could no longer see a show and wait six months for that trend to arrive in stores. I mean, we'd be over it by then, right? And so fast fashion got faster, adapting to this idea too. See the show, quickly put together a line that uses those ideas, and get it into the store in two to three months. This led to the surge in air shipping for apparel, which has become the standard when it was previously the exception. We talk about this in episode one. Shipping clothes, shoes, and accessories via air is exponentially more expensive than shipping on a boat, but it takes about a week versus a month or two. As buyers, we covered that cost of luxurious air travel, but cutting costs elsewhere. Even cheaper fabrics, cheaper trims, higher price points for lower quality goods. Remember, fast fashion isn't always identified by its price. It can also be masquerading as a $98 pair of jeans or a $128 sweater. That's something that I cannot emphasize enough. This is how brands and retailers that previously were not fast fashion became fast fashion. They delivered new stuff constantly, launching new products almost daily. I mean, I've worked for retailers that launched 10, 20, 30 products every single day of the year. It's like so much stuff. And things went to mark down faster and faster. The sort of seasonality of the products became really confusing. Like first we started to see gloves and sweaters in July and sandals in December and that almost felt normal because then strange non-seasonal hybrids appeared that always mystified me as an inherently practical person like open toe boots. Which turned into a boot sandal hybrid that only covered about forty percent of the foot. So when do you wear those? Like maybe briefly in May before it gets too hot to wear a boot or I mean that seems unuseful. And then there's short sleeve coats, maybe a three quarter sleeve parka, like like what? I don't even get when you would feel warm, but not too warm in that. And then it was like year round shorts, sweater camis, cropped flare pants in winter. You know what I'm talking about. The upside for retailers to all of this nonsense is that it forced us to layer more, to spend more money on warm socks for those open toe boots and cropped pants. We had to buy big sweaters to layer over our year-round shorts, and this was all more sales. Another really weird thing happened. The rise of online shopping made it more difficult to make your assortment special, because basically someone could find something on your site and just Google it. Find it somewhere else. You had to start working on exclusive product with brands and designers. Maybe a different print or an extra three inches in length, like whatever it, you had to do to make it technically exclusive to you. This was the beginning of nonstop collabs and much hyped capsules. I'm looking at you, streetwear, with your hype culture that just results in more and more waste. But regular brands and retailers were doing this too, and, and they would cite someone like Supreme and say, like, listen, we gotta follow that Supreme model sat in meetings like that it seemed like putting together a collab with an influencer or a brand that had nothing to do with your industry was just part of the new job description as a buyer this led to things like the forever 21 taco bell collection and asos beauty slash crayola yes the crayon company makeup collab another strange forever 21 usps collection which seems timely now but not two years ago or how about adidas and arizona Ice tea Museum of Ice Cream and Sephora, Fila and Chupa Chup, which is a lollipop brand. This one I kind of like, <laughs> Warby Parker and Arby's. This one, I mean, it seems meant to be, right? Or how about Forever 21 and Cheetos, Huff and Spam? I mean, I could go on and on and they get even sillier than those examples. Once again, did the world really need this stuff? No. But these exclusives and collabs were great because not only could you create product that was exclusive to your company, meaning a customer could never use Google to buy it more cheaply somewhere else, you could dictate the retail price of it, marking it up more than the rest of your inventory, which means more profit. And when it came to exclusives from real designers and brands, you could sub out fabrics to make it cheaper, but sell at the same or even higher price because it was exclusive You could mark it down whenever you wanted do whatever you wanted with it really and maybe if you were lucky you could also rtv it meaning return it to the brand or designer if it didn't sell let it become their problem let it ruin their business there's a lot more in the article and i urge you to check it out it does ask with no real answer what is next for fashion i mean i wish i had an answer For those of you who are small designers, who make slow fashion, who sell vintage or remade goods, I say keep it up. Keep the offering tight. Don't make too much, but stay true to your brand. That strawberry dress by Larika Matoshi, Matoshi? I'm totally probably bungling that name. Well, that strawberry dress is a prime example. It's one of only a handful of designs that she makes. It's a tiny collection, and she's built a massively growing business off of it. You don't need a huge collection of constant newness to build a successful business. You just need a few great ideas that you stand behind, that you make well, that you serve graciously to the customers of the world. For the rest of us, the people who just wear the clothes, I don't have a trend forecast for us. say let's just buy things only when we need them and only buy things we love and intend to love for a long time i'm grateful for this time we are somehow suddenly allowed to be ourselves maybe that's the trend to dress the way we want to not feel compelled to buy into some idea of what we're supposed to be there's so much going on right now that shows that our country and its capitalist system are fundamentally broken So let's focus on fixing that before we think about the next hot print story or what kind of shoes we should get for fall. Like, let's think about healthcare in this country, how it fails most because it's tied to employment and well, wealth. The wealthiest get the best healthcare, the rest of us get whatever is left. It's a for-profit system, which (laughs) makes no sense. I mean, we've seen how the for-profit system of fast fashion has spiraled out of control. Yet our healthcare system operates under a similar model. It's a system that is making massive profits, like record high profits during a global pandemic. Basically it's like healthcare and Amazon are killing it right now. How does that seem fair? I lost my insurance when I lost my job and it's been a terrifying and frustrating process to figure out how to cover myself. COBRA costs as much as my rent. It's hard when I'm making about 20% of my regular salary on unemployment, and I had to be rejected twice for Medicaid before I can qualify for discounted insurance via the Affordable Care Act. I make $300 too much for Medicaid, which is fine. I mean, I just want some health insurance. I'm down to pay for it. I just don't want to have to choose between food or health insurance. I'm still waiting for the bureaucracy to move through my application, which is terrifying. Last week, I had food poisoning, and I laid in bed worrying that I would have to choose between dying or bankruptcy. And you know what? Millions of other people are struggling with the same quandary. My fight for a better healthcare system (laughs) has been going on for a while, actually. I mean, while we're here talking about it. We faced a similarly foolish situation a few years ago when my daughter's OCD led to multiple hospitalizations and long expensive treatment plans. We had ACA insurance then because my employer, which was a super woke feminist company, did not provide health insurance. And the deductible was out of control. The mental health coverage was virtually non-existent. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say we were nearly bankrupted. Even today, years later, the bills are still rolling in, but obviously we can't pay them now. I took the job I just lost so we could get her better healthcare and so I could continue to pay down the medical debt. Hence we entered a pandemic and my furlough slash now unemployment with little to no savings. It's beyond devastating to work your whole life and have nothing to show for it. But I'm in such a luckier position than so many other people in our country. I would like us to take the time and energy we spend worrying about what to wear for social media and put it into changing this country and its daily nightmare for the poor, non-white citizens, when we fix all of that, we can start fretting about brunch dresses and dusty dinner looks again. Well, now that I've totally turned a podcast about fashion into a podcast about anti-fashion, let's get into our conversation about denim with Michelle. <laughs> Denim is sort of universal. I mean, we see it across every price point, like I was mentioning earlier, from $20 to like $500. And it seems like every retailer or brand has it on their line. So like on the low end, a pair of skinny jeans can be $20. I saw these on Fashion Nova. I've also sourced denim that's $500 because it's premium and like, you know, maybe there's some patches (laughs) to it. (laughs) And, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like remade or something. What's the difference – if we take the brand name off the label, Mm -hmm. what's the difference between $20 pair of jeans and a $200 pair of jeans? There's quite
1: a bit of difference, actually. I would say the biggest difference is going to be your fabric and your wash. So typically, like when something is like $20 – Okay, well definitely okay. that wasn't made anywhere near the United States. Definitely not. Definitely not. When it comes to what it costs to put together a pair of jeans, it's a couple of dollars as opposed to, you know, twenty or whatever. So right there, there's that. But you also need to know that the fabric is probably like really cheap. It's probably like two dollar a yard fabric versus something that a two to three hundred dollar pair of jeans is going for is Anything from the four, like mid fours, up to like like something that's topping in like the three hundred dollar range is probably going to stop around in the sixes. It wouldn't really be able to go much higher than seven, just because on top of that you have to factor in like shipping and duty and all this other fun stuff that like you know you never really think about when you think about the cost of a yard and. It takes about uh, for like a skinny jean. It takes about like a yard and a half okay. on average of fabric. You know, so right there, it's like if it's a five dollar per yard of fabric. You know what? That's going to be seven fifty eight dollars. You know, just in fabric alone. Whereas if it's a two dollar yard, you know, a yard of fabric, it's it's going to be you know what like three fifty in fabric.
0: You know, it's already. I'm getting stressed out about this because I'm in, in my mind, I'm doing the calculation for the IMU, the margin for a $20 pair of jeans. (laughs) I know. And I actually, uh, just as you started talking, checked fashion Nova again, you have jeans that are $19.99. So just kind of doing this backwards, assuming that you're thinking like maybe the fabric Mm is $2 a yard, right? So it's probably going to use about $3 worth of fabric. And they want to make probably a 75 margin here. That means they the mm-hmm. whole thing needs to cost about five dollars. So that leaves two dollars mm-hmm. for sewing, shipping, duty, yep. labels, you you name it. So like what else could you even do there?
1: Yeah, it's really difficult. The thing that's on Fashion Nova's side, and you know, I'm sure we're going to talk about this at some point, and I know that you've already talked about it in your previous episodes, is units. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot more power as far as price goes and negotiation. The more units you're placing with a manufacturer, you know, if you're placing 300 units. You don't have very much power if you're placing five thousand, ten thousand, or twenty thousand units with someone. Then you have a lot more power with them, and you have a lot more say in what you're going to be paying, because you can always threaten to take your business away to someone else. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, it's like these manufacturers really aren't making very much money on that product. They're making like, like literal yeah, like sense yeah, on it. They, I mean, they are, and that's like really crazy. To think about, you know, like their their profit margin is just not very, very big. When the wash comes into play, especially if it's like some sort of like destructed wash and especially if it's on like anything with like lycra or whatever, it's like they're basically just like throwing it in a machine with some bleach. They might have like some stones in there, but not very much. They're not abrading it for very long. So they're using um, less time. They're spraying instead of hand applying the potassium. They're not doing it with like any real skill level. That's why it'll like seem like really blotchy and like really white. That's where you see like the really heavy kind of application of potassium, like where it seems like really bright and like really white and like really blown out. Mm -hmm. That's like a spray. Totally. That's what you get when you're buying like a less expensive product because you're not paying for that skilled labor and you're not paying for that like nuance. Nuance is so important when it comes to – how authentic something looks you're you're just kind of getting this like super fast application everything's done as quickly as possible the tears might be just like literal scissor cuts in the fabric or like they use like razor blades they might be done prior to the thing going into the wash down so that means that the holes are like really like kind of blown out and like chaotic or maybe they're just done after and then they don't have like any abrasion at all So like that's what's happening when you're – that's how they're kind of like getting that cost down on that wash. And like the wash is probably like a couple dollars.
0: It makes sense. Like when I was just looking at the fashion of a page, all the denim seems to be the same uniform light blue wash. Yeah. Like like, you know what I'm talking about. It's like very flat sort of. There's no texture. Mm -hmm. The other thing I'll see a Mm -hmm. lot in cheap jeans that makes me – crazy is the wash down that's just on the thighs and it's really highly contrasted and it's like
1: solid yeah that's potassium so that's like spray they're just like spraying the entire front of the garment they're just like it's just like this like giant like like it's like a paint sprayer they're putting it on an inflatable dummy and then they're just like spraying it down the leg And then that's also why you see like those like crazy, like it looks like a line, like a thin line, you know, that's like two inches or something, like down the back of a leg. Like it's not blended and it's like really Mm -hmm. harsh and it just like stops. That's that. You know, like I said, it takes a lot of skill to make that look natural. Totally. They're using hand-done application and they're like feathering it out. And that's what you're paying for on these like more expensive washes. So you're not seeing those lines. So they're applying it a totally different way. I mean, I have, I've done washes where the whole garment is hand potassiumed. So they're basically brushing the entire garment with potassium. But you can't tell because it's like – because it's so feathered in and it's like so well blended. You just can't get that sort of look with a spray. And you certainly can't get it when you're paying like $2 for an entire wash. It just doesn't exist.
0: So what about – okay, stretch – Like, jeggings, stretch – I mean, there's a whole spectrum, right? There are jeggings, which are basically leggings that are somehow affiliated with denim. (laughs) And then there's, like, a nicer, like, the more stealthily Mm -hmm. stretchy jeans Mm -hmm. that look like they're rigid. Like, why are the cheaper jeans that are stretchy always so – Cheap Mm -hmm. and lose their shape versus like nicer ones that
1: don't. It's just the quality of the fabric. It's just the way it's woven together. Mm -hmm. I mean, just at a very base level, you know, they're using cheaper materials to like weave together, I guess would be like the best way to describe it. It could be like a looser Mm -hmm. weave. So it's just, it just doesn't have that same stretch integrity. I wear a lot of rigid denim and like that's like my preferred denim. But you know, being a designer, it's like, I, I don't design for myself. So obviously I'm very well versed in the different types of stretch and why things fit the way they fit and all that kind of stuff. And women like stretch jeans, like they're comfortable. They're more comfortable than rigid. Like, like absolutely. I mean, if I'm going to fly in a plane, I'm probably not going to wear my rigid Levi's because I'm going to be in pain the entire time. I'm just like, this feels so uncomfortable. Like, why did I do yeah. this to myself? I mean, I have. And then I'm just like instantly like regarded it when I got <laughs> off the plane. I'm just like, cool. What did I just do to myself? That being said, when you get into these like better types of fabrics, they're just constructed differently. So the more you're paying, typically the better it's constructed and the less likely it is that it's going to be to bag out because there's nothing worse than like, buying a pair of jeans that, like, fits you in the morning. You put them on. They fit you. And then by noon, you have baggy knees and your butt's, like, sagging.
0: Yeah, totally. And then you have to wash them every single time you wear them, wash and dry them. Right.
1: Yeah. And then that degrades and breaks down the fabric even more. I mean, I'm all for washing your denim. I am not a denim purist that thinks you shouldn't wash your denim. That also leads to your denim breaking down because the oils in your skin are like getting on the denim and they're basically eating it. So you should wash your jeans. But when it's like a stretch jean, like you shouldn't have to wash it every time you wear it because that is going to end up breaking down your jeans. And it's like the fabric elasticity just isn't going to hold. It just was never meant to hold. It was meant to to make you buy it when you put it on, but everyone knew that 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 wasn't going to hold yeah, throughout yeah. the day. Like every designer that touched that, every company that touched it, knew that by midday your jeans were going to be sagging around your butt, and that you're going to have this weird pouch in your crotch, and that like the waist wasn't going to fit, and that your knees were going to be all baggy and weird looking. And but it was still going to magically be tight. It like yeah, somehow, so, somehow, right? There's that <laughs> somehow it just it just holds, yeah. So. How will the sewing
0: be different in terms of these like $20 jeans versus 300 because it seems going back to that idea that if the fabric was $2 and we're trying to sell these for $20 like there's not much money left to pay the sewers. Is there any difference in the sewing or is it just like sewing jeans is sewing jeans? Yes, there is a
1: difference. Whether someone without a trained eye would be able to see it, I don't know. But there definitely is a difference. There's like really specific points on jeans that's like really important to sew like really well. And to have like a really skilled operator doing it because it's it's tricky. Like So like the crotch or like what we call the rise, you know, those are your front rise and your back rise. So if you ever like take off your jeans and you turn them inside out, you can see that they're curved. They're connected together. Well, that's a really tricky part to sew. And the fastest and easiest way to sew it is a straight line and you pull it. When you have an operator that's either unskilled or is trying to push through a very large order with very little time, they're they're going to yank it through the machine, meaning they're going to destroy that pretty curve that the pattern maker built in that's meant to like hug around your body. So a lot of times what I find in the cheaper denim, not just denim, but just pants in general, like anything that's like sewn in this fashion is that it gives me like an extra – Crotch, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like where I shouldn't have one because it's straight and we're not straight. Right. Like we don't have anything <laughs> extra there. We just don't. Like we're innies. So <laughs> instead of it like curving around my body, it's like pulled and it's straight and it just makes it look like I have like this like weird straight penis like mm-hmm. hanging down around my thigh. Totally. And it's uncomfortable and it doesn't Mm -hmm. feel good. So there's that. So number one, they mess with the curves on the rise. The same goes for the back rise. And this can get into like a lot of different areas, be it pattern, be it sewing, where you can like mess with this. Because even like the best pattern can get destroyed with bad sewing. It's really easy to cut off like the curve or to pull it. And so it's the same with that. You know, if they they pull it too hard, they're going to stretch it out and they're going to ruin that curve. Then that's going to kind of make you look like you have like a flat butt.
0: I won't say the name of a <laughs> of where I was working. I know what you're talking about. But uh, this is back when I was working retail. We sold these jeans, and I mean they were like a mm-hmm. huge program for us. Like, you know, it's back to school, we're gonna sell nine gazillion mm-hmm. pairs. And everybody who worked in the store called them the butt flattening jeans, yeah, or square butt jeans, just depended, you know, who you would talk to. One day this mother and her daughter came in, and I want to start by saying, like, these jeans were not twenty dollars. Like, I want to say they were like eighty-nine dollars, which I know in the world of denim is not that premium but also this was like 2003
1: like that was that was like a decent yeah that was like a decent price pair of jeans back then totally right right and like the denim itself
0: felt pretty decent and like you know quality and like it would stand the test of time but already as you've been talking to me about what cheap washing and details can look like I'm like yeah these jeans embodied all of that All of the, like, the parts that had been sprayed just looked shitty. It just had, like, all the things. If they were ever distressed, it just didn't quite look right. So, so But mm-hmm. these jeans were not that cheap. So this mother comes in. I'm working at the cash rep and with her daughter, her teenage daughter. She's like, we need to do a return. And I'm like, okay, of course. Like, show me what you have. And she pulls out a pair of these, these butt-flattening jeans. And I'm like, oh, no, like, what <laughs> and happened? Like, oh, and no. she's like – oh, I don't know, turn them over. And I turn them over and the whole ass is just blown (laughs) out, like, like top to bottom, you know? And I like gasped. It was so bad. And the girl is like, all I was doing was walking up the stairs. And I'm like, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry. Like we'll do a return, whatever. And, And the mom's like, oh no, we're not done. She pulls out another pair they had not even been worn because they were missing the the whole, like, button assembly. <laughs> I'm like, all right, well, no problem. Like, we'll return these two. And she's like, no, wait, we have one more pair. Oh, my God. The mother says to me, honestly, you should be embarrassed to sell these to us. And, and I was like, yeah, I'm already feeling embarrassed for selling these to you. I'm already mortified. <sighs> one leg is at least six inches shorter than the other. Amazing. Like, so like it was just so – terrible and once again like these were not $20 jeans yeah I mean obviously like you're talking about like the way the the cheap sewing will make your butt flat and you get the extra crotch and Mm -hmm. I remember trying on these jeans and I thought they were a nightmare because they did all of those things Mm -hmm. they were so uncomfortable Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm saying is that we see this stuff in cheap jeans we all recognize it but sometimes we also will see this in jeans that are in that in-between stage. Totally, Because yeah. maybe maybe the retailer's like marking them up a ton or like they're not doing any QA. Or maybe
1: the brand is, you know? Maybe the brand is like, oh, cool. We got this like $2 fabric and it like kind of looks okay. Yeah, let's go for this. Like look at all the markup we're going to make on this. Trust me, I've done that. So <laughs> they're like, Michelle, we got this like closeout fabric or like we've had this in the warehouse for like eight years. We really need to use it. I'm just like, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. (laughs) Super excited about that. How many yards do you have? Oh, 2000. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. You know, you're just like tasked with like, just like this (laughs) immense pile of shit from the beginning that you have to like make into like a pile of shit with a bow on it. So like if a fabric has been like sitting in a warehouse for like two years, odds are like it hasn't been sitting in the best conditions. Like you don't know like what's happened to it. So it would not surprise me if something like that happened along the way or that like one of those pairs from that batch ripped just anywhere. Sometimes like with that kind of stuff, it's like the needles that they use in the sewing, like maybe they're the wrong needles. And so it messes with the tensile strength of the fabric too. Or... Maybe the stretch broke in the fabric, and that's when you see, like, those weird ripples in, like, stretch fabric. You commonly see them, like, kind of around the crotch, like when you take off the fabric, the elastic breaks. Well, you can see that in the back, too, and it just makes the fabric really weak, and so it's, like, anywhere there's a stress point, it's going to rip. So, yeah, I mean, like, that poor girl walking up those stairs, I feel so bad for her.
0: I know, I know. It's like my worst nightmare. Imagine if she had worn those to school. She'd be in therapy still.
1: Oh my God. She'd still be in therapy. Yeah. Like, I mean, still, like, at, like at least once a week. <laughs> Just about – This All of it, like all the terrors that (laughs) happen, like, Like, just, God. But then like when you talk about like the one that like didn't have the button and then the one that was like six inches like shorter, it's like that's all like quality control stuff that should never have left the factory. Right. Because like once it leaves the factory, then it goes to like the distribution center and they're not really looking at it at the distribution center most of the times. You know, it comes in like plastic bags and they're just pulling – I mean, they should be looking at mm-hmm. it. They should be doing random inspections where they pull out X amount from each shipment and each size just to see. And they should be measuring it and they should be looking at it. But they don't usually because that costs money and it takes time. But, yeah, that should never have, like, left the factory like that. That's, like, really sad. And it makes me wonder, like, mm-hmm. well, how many other pairs, like, left the factory like that? Oh.
0: Oh, I I feel like it was an ongoing problem because we were constantly damaging those out. And now oh that was before I had buyer experience and could see all the touch points along the way that seemed to have missed this. You know how it is if you're like, or maybe you don't know this, you do know the side of it. Like when you're pushing a vendor like, hey, I need yeah. this order like three weeks ago, they're not going to QA anything. Yeah. They're going to be just like sewing, sewing, throwing in a bin, next pair, next pair, next pair. And like, yep, that's what yep. fast fashion is. And that's- how fast fashion works—that you are like faster, faster, faster. I need these. I'm doing a promo.
1: Yeah, I'm doing a promo. Um, I'm doing a reorder. I know I got this order to you late, but I don't care. <laughs> the the deadline still holds, and I, maybe I got this to you late because our fabric was late, but the deadline still holds. You know, it's like, and and when that happens, like all of these little kind of like stop gaps throughout the process get really messed up so maybe you'll have like less fit sessions and that, that's a huge thing with like fast fashion is you just don't have the same amount of time to fit it as you would or test it. You don't have time to fit the fit the gene. You don't have time to like test the fabric. You don't have like enough time to like really test the production wash because a production wash is entirely different than a sample wash. You know, so like all of these like little things that like kind of make an expensive gene more expensive they just don't exist at that cheaper level.
0: Right, right. Partly because of the timeframe Frame. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to have time to do like three fits and get the model in no. and send out oh God, the notes. You know, it's like ironic because denim is sort of like the hardest thing for everyone to fit into. Oh, God. I think that's – I mean, this is just observational, but I think that's why we see that the cheapest jeans are so stretchy because it's just easier.
1: Yeah. it's it. They have yeah, to be. Yeah. They have yeah. to be. Because stretch is more forgiving. You know, the stretchier something is, the more body types can fit into it. It's more forgiving if there's any mistakes. Because, you know, it's like I said earlier, the manufacturing process isn't perfect and there's going to be mistakes. And sometimes you can fix them and sometimes you can't. And sometimes things come in an inch small or an inch big. And it doesn't come in an inch small like proportionately. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like Mm -hmm. sometimes it's only an inch small in the waist. Sometimes it's an inch small in the hips. I've had things that have come in two inches small in the hips and an inch small in the waist or an inch big in the waist. And you're just like, oh my God, like how did that happen? No, no idea. Like literally no idea. Nobody can explain it to me.
0: (laughs) It's always a surprise.
1: It's always a surprise. So when you're dealing with like a super stretchy fabric, it really kind of makes that whole thing a lot easier because if it does come in like an inch small, meh, it's going to stretch out that inch. Someone's still going to be able to fit into it. It'll be fine. It'll
0: be fine. Yeah. That is something I've noticed. When we talk about cheaper denim, like stuff that is under $60 maybe, mm-hmm. you can't assume that every pair you buy is going to fit the same way even oh if God, it's like no. allegedly the same cut. No. At the same retailer where I had the privilege of selling the uh, butt flattening jeans, uh, the butt flattening. <laughs> I would have to constantly have conversations with customers that were like, Oh well, no. I'll just get the size. That's what I got in the other color, and I'd be like,
1: "You, you can't do that. Like, you need to go try these on. They're going to be totally different." You really should go. Yeah. Please listen to me. You really yeah. should go try them on. You must. You must. Please don't. Okay, you don't want to I'm bringing them back, but being <laughs> mad at me somehow. <laughs> yeah, I, did, I, I, I did you wrong. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, Totally. So when you and I were talking about jeans, I just wanted to bring this up because I have notes here about it. You talked about how. Yeah. Uniqlo is a little different because their denim's not expensive, yeah. right? Their model is a little different in terms of how they do it.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're not expensive at like the consumer end at all. They're all like 40 bucks and I'm going to tell you, I
0: mean, obviously I'm just looking at them online. They look really nice. <laughs>
1: they're not $20, but they're not, you know, they're $40. That's like a decent price for something. Mm-hmm. They actually buy a lot of really good fabric. I know Uniqlo uses some of the same like top tier fabric vendors that I use in, you know, the markets that I've worked in, which are the jeans that are selling between three and four and $500. So the reason that they're able to do this is because number one, they have massive units behind them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like Uniqlo is placing orders for like 20,000 units, 30,000 units. And so when they're able to do that, it's like they're getting breaks at the fabric level. They're not big breaks, like, because I've talked to my sales reps about it and they're really, they're not big breaks, but I mean, a couple cents here and there does help, Mm -hmm. but then they're also not like doing crazy intense processing on their pants for especially the things that are like nicer fabrics. They're not really overly processing them. They might be doing a rinse and that's it because the fabric is already so nice and soft and you don't really need to do much to it. Like it's just a nice fabric and you know you want like a good nice dark pair of jeans so like where to work to where to like the office great perfect yeah that's how they're kind of getting around it is by you know doing a better piece good but then they have like huge units to back it up so that that makes their manufacturing cost cheaper like their price per unit is cheaper
0: right right and to be fair like we don't know anything about what their supply chain is like i i Mm -hmm. actually after we talked about this i tried to dig in and figure out like where uniqlo is making their stuff what the conditions are and i couldn't find anything so that's on lockdown yeah like no 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 for you there are a ton of different things that could be going on there it could be totally fine you know everything is great on the up and up and they just take a lower margin or they are doing such volume cuz it's an international brand mm-hmm. they might be doing so much volume that they can mm-hmm. get the costing yeah. they want and keep the prices low But I will say, like, universally when I buy things from them, it's always Mm -hmm. the nicest fabric. So I would love to unlock what's going on there, but I have no idea. But it is this, like, fast fashion price point, which
1: makes me concerned. Well, they're definitely not producing in, you know, the United States or anything. They're based in Japan, right?
0: Yes, yes. In fact, in Japan, like –
1: There's a Uniqlo everywhere. (laughs)
0: It's like Uniqlo and Muji in every neighborhood. Every single neighborhood, yeah. There's no brand here in the United States as ubiquitous as Uniqlo
1: is in Japan, unless it's like Target, you know. But like Target isn't just solely clothes. Yeah, yeah. That's about how many Uniqlo's there are in Japan. Like I remember seeing that, and I was just like, oh my god, there's like so many. And as many as there are in Japan, is there there are Uniqlo's in Europe? There's Uniqlo's across Asia you know, China and just wherever you want to go. So that's why they have like these like huge, massive numbers. And they're producing, you know, they could be producing in Pakistan. Or they could be producing in some other like far-flung area of the globe. India, they could, you know, and especially if they're not doing something that requires like anything more than like a simple rinse, that really opens up their area of production to places that that's not really their expertise. Because just as you were talking about on previous episode is like factories have expertise. And, you know, it's like you wouldn't go to a manufacturer that didn't have good resources to do washes if you wanted like a really nice wash. But if you don't need that, then, you know, it really opens up where you can go. So I would say they're probably utilizing other resources.
0: If anybody who's listening knows anything about the Uniqlo supply chain, please, please drop me a line. I would love to know. Yeah, please. Me too. Inquiring minds want to know. Michelle, I'm going to ask you a complicated question. Okay. Or I know the answer is going to be complicated. Okay. (laughs) Are more expensive, like, premium jeans better for the environment? No. (laughs) (laughs)
1: no that's the short honest answer is it more complicated than that like sure yes you know as I like went into earlier you know the thing that that you know you do have going for you when you buy something that's made in the U.S. is that we do have stricter environmental standards than some of these other countries do and so by that term like yes (laughs) They're better for the environment. There's all just different kinds of like, quote unquote, sustainable washes and like eco-friendly washes that you can do that are like less water. And like, we can get into that later. But your typical piece of denim or, you know, or jean that's washed, it's happening kind of a, the same way, no matter where it's happening. It's just that we have stricter laws here. So it's a little bit better here. I mean, not a little, it's a lot better here. It's still not good. For the environment and the same philosophy as us kind of going into these like burgeoning economies, like when we first started going into China, you know, like 20 years ago to start manufacturing and utilizing their workforce, you know, it's like we kind of do the same thing here, we go into, I hate to use the word depressed areas, but, you know, economically depressed areas and like that's where you'll find all the factories. You're not going to find a factory or a wash house in Beverly Hills. Can you imagine? (laughs) There's just no way that would ever, ever, ever happen, right? Like, no, you're going to find them in areas that are economically repressed because you can.
0: Yeah, and there's cheap labor there. In the episode about e-commerce that we recorded with Kim, it was a similar situation in terms of like warehouses Warehouses are always in these more economically Mm -hmm. depressed neighborhoods or, you know, the middle of nowhere where there's no Mm jobs. So anyone will be desperate for a job. Yeah, totally. You would never see like Amazon's not going to put a warehouse in Beverly Hills either. No. I mean, I think we're seeing a clear pattern of this kind of exploitive behavior across fashion in all of its different
1: incarnations. It's absolutely exploitive. You have to think about it in the terms of property taxes and all that kind of stuff. It's like, who's paying the property taxes? You know, or what are the property taxes like in these poorer areas? You know, they're not nearly the amount that's bringing in, and, you know, like a an affluent area and so it's just like sure why not put a a manufacturing Mm -hmm. plant in there that's like spewing chemicals out because like they're not going to get the same complaints as they're going to get if you put that smack dab in the middle of an affluent neighborhood like there's just no way it would ever fly because you would have just people up in arms unfortunately in these more economically repressed areas that just doesn't happen it's really depressing (laughs) like it is it is, it is. One of the issues that I have with things is, is it's like where these factories are located and like what they're doing for their surrounding communities. One of the, the wash houses I used to go to was like actually, actually there's a couple of them. They're actually on residential streets. I'm sure we have like environmental standards about it and like they're much stricter here, but like they don't smell good. They have to be putting chemicals into the air, you know? And like, what does that do for like kids that are growing up there? It's like the asthma must be like through the roof. It's like, you see like all these like smokestacks and stuff like happening and where is that water going and all the chemicals, like what's happening. You can smell them outside. Yeah. It's just, they're not in affluent areas ever. Right. Right. You know, it's cheaper to put them there and Mm -hmm. it's quieter. For the neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like they're not going to get pushback. Totally. Because the people that are living in those neighborhoods don't have the authority to push back. Yep, it's a tale as old as time. (laughs) It really is. And so, you know, and that's part of the reason why we've gone into these other countries and, you know, we've pursued manufacturing there. So, in
0: my experience as a buyer, this is kind of a shift in topic a little bit. It always seems like the nice, like, premium denim brands have a lot of money to throw around. They have tons of influencers. As a buyer, they're just, like, giving me gifts and free shit all the time. You Mm -hmm. go to the showroom, and they have, like, a buffet out for you. And at the trade shows, they'll have just the most epic booth. It's like oh, four God. times the size of any of the other apparel brands. And it's like walled off. and It's like
1: four stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it like looks a like, whole, it took, like, like build out. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. It's like bigger than a lot of apartments, uh, apartments yeah. I've had. Totally. So this is – and this is something that I keep coming back to like as I'm trying to kind of untangle why better things are more expensive. And in a lot of situations, we know that we're paying for better sewing. We're paying for better fabrics. But when we went back to talking about the fabrics earlier, you kind of said that the fabric might sort of max out at like $6. So I'm just wondering if we see higher costs, like wholesale costs for this denim, which then at the store is even higher because the brands have to cover this stuff. Like what's your experience there? Is, this, is the budget for marketing and selling as high as I'm envisioning it?
1: Yeah, it's huge. It's, I mean, it's massive. It's. I mean, yeah, like so much money, time and effort goes into getting the consumer to notice and covet that $300 pair of jeans because it's a lot of money to get someone to separate from. We focus a lot of time and energy on making you want to do that.
0: Yeah. I mean, my experience as a buyer has been that the premium denim brands are the hardest to get to sell to you, right? There's so much negotiation and begging and mm-hmm. pleading on my mm-hmm. side, like, please, please. And it's always like, well, you know, who else will we sit with? Like, what's the other product assortment? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, now I need to know how many stores it's going to be in and who's going to buy it and blah, 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 blah. But then once you're in the door... It's like you're living the life. You know, you're getting like five pairs of jeans a month and like you're getting the best cheese plate oh, yeah. when you go to appointments yeah. and they'll let you swap stuff that's not selling and, you know, they'll really work with you.
1: Well, because like they want their brand image to, to stay high. A lot of, you know, quote unquote premium brands, like they won't let their product go on sale. They'd rather take it back. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's like they don't want it to be seen as deflated in the market. So they'll just take it back. Like if it's not selling. Which
0: is actually nice when you're a denim buyer because there's less risk there. You know, you're going to protect your margin and just swap into something. I've definitely had, you know, like at Nasty Gal, we found that our customer really liked the more premium denim, of course. And Mm -hmm. obviously the begging and pleading that we would have to get to to be like, please, can we carry citizens? Please, 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 please. I've experienced this at other jobs I've had too. It's definitely difficult, but it was nice to know that on to a certain level, we were protected from having to take really terrible markdowns. But I do think, you know, something we've talked about in previous episodes is the bottom line, kind of like what's the final profit margin and how that can dictate the wholesale cost, which then dictates mm-hmm. the retail cost. And I think with denim, we see these high wholesale costs because while the product itself wasn't that expensive to make all these cheese plates and buyer gifts, like, you know, they have a
1: price. <laughs> I mean, you know, depending on the product could be expensive to make. Like mm-hmm. yeah, sometimes you know, sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. But yeah, I mean like all the cheese plates and like the the knowledge that like they could be taking that that inventory back and swapping it out for something else, that's gotta configure into like that cost somewhere. It's not free. And do you know what
0: happens to that product when they take it back?
1: Um, I mean, sometimes they put it on their website and sell it. Sometimes it just sits in boxes and then they do a sample sale. <laughs> sometimes it gets, you know, after a couple of years in boxes, it'll go to like an off-price retailer, you know, like TJ Maxx or Marshalls or something. Yeah. Yeah. But Makes But, sense. That, Makes but sense. that's after sitting on it for a couple of years. Because they don't want to flood the market with, like, this brand new product that, like, other people just had. Right. You know, because that would, like, destroy their brand image and, like, why they're so expensive.
0: One thing we've talked about over and over again is the concessions we sort of have to make to hit a cost target that ties into our margin goals and our target retails and, like, what our customers want to spend money on. What kind of changes have you had to make as a designer to meet the cost being dictated by buying. It's a big question. I mean, I know it sucks. It sucks, yeah. We've talked to a production person about that and I've given my perspective as a buyer. It's it's kind of it's the worst conversation to have. It really is, you know, for everyone. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So what do you do? I mean, I'm assuming I mean, you've worked for like Z Cavaricis, so you know about how trying to hit a price point. Well, yeah. But even at NASI, we had to hit a price point you know
1: i mean to be honest everywhere has to hit a price point even these premium brands because like i have a good mix of both premium like super high end and kind of like quote unquote junior or budget friendly denim and the answer is there's always concessions that you make you kind of go into it knowing where you're going to retail at and, you know, in premium, it's like, yeah, what that means is, you know, we're in the better market, it just, it means, okay, I can use more expensive fabrics and I have a little bit more leeway on what I can do in the wash. And I know about where my product is going to retail at. And I have kind of like a range, you know, I need to have, all right, uh, I need to have like two, I need to have at least two jeans that come in at 188. So what am I going to do to make these two jeans come in at 188? When everything else is over 200. And then I also have, I can have one jean that comes in at 300 or I can, you know, two Mm -hmm. or something. And then the rest need to be in this kind of middle ballpark area in the twos. From there, it's like, for me, it's usually, you know, because especially if you're doing like a five pocket, Mm -hmm. it's not like a crazy, like novelty style. I usually do it in the wash
0: yeah, it seems like that's kind of one of the most expensive parts of it. It It
1: is. Yeah, it's really expensive. I mean, like, wash prices have more than doubled since I, you know, kind of, like, first started in the industry, like, for, like, the same exact washes, which is just crazy. If something comes in, like, too high, that – say I've worked on really hard and that, you know, we're getting a really good reaction from, but the jean is just too expensive because of the wash, then you have to go back to the laundry because it's like, that's the only place that you can give at that point. You have to go back to the laundry and first you like just negotiate the price in general. Then once that's negotiated and if it's still too high, then you have to start eliminating things from the wash that aren't as, I guess, important or that won't kind of matter as much if they're gone. It's like, oh, do I really need that extra nick or do I need that extra grinding or can I live with the not all over hand sanding or potassium or okay, let's look at that, what that looks like, you know, it's kind of going back to the drawing board a little bit and not being so rigid. I think that the thing that's, you know, really important for me and that I've found really helpful is, you know, not being entirely married to one idea. (laughs) Um, Uh
0: Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. No,
0: I think that's a good way to to summarize it. You know, that's true.
1: Like you have to be really flexible to be successful, um, especially in (laughs) denim.
0: and not lose your mind. And you not know? lose your
1: mind. And you can't be really sensitive about it, you know? It's just like – because a lot of no. times, like, you know, especially with, like, when I work with, like, younger designers, you know, they get really invested in this thing that they've created. And it's like, yeah, I know it's it's beautiful and it's nice, but we got to change it. And they just get, like, really kind of, like, angry that it has to be changed. And it's like – like, I get it. Like, it 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 sucks. I know you put a lot of work into it. But it's either change <laughs> it or we don't sell it. So – those are the options. Like I'm going with, I want to sell it. Yeah. And so is the sales force. So let's see what we can do to still make it a great wash, but, you know, change it a little bit, you know, change it so that you, you someone probably won't even notice it. You know, no one's going to know what it looked like originally. And, you know, the, the changes are so small usually But it's just working, having a really good working relationship with your developer and being, okay, like, listen, like, what can we really do to, like, take off, like, a couple bucks that's, like, not going to really affect the overall look. It's not like the customer
0: knows what your original intention was by the time the product hits the floor.
1: No. It's going to look great. You know, nine times out of ten, it's still – it's going to look great. You know, but I feel like there are people that are really, like, immovable in, like, that respect, and they just – It's like really personal to them. And it just can't be, Mm -hmm. you know. Otherwise, like, you're just never going to like sell anything. And it's just going to like be like a problem for you and your career. (laughs) Take everything (laughs) like so like personal, you know?
0: I would say for any job you have in fashion, you have to emotionally separate yourself from the work or you will constantly be crying at home over a pair of jeans you couldn't buy. Basically, I mean, it's yeah, yeah. I've had to work on a lot of products that I hated. I've had to see a yeah. product I love go away or get watered yep. down. Yep. Or you, you fucking love it. You worked so hard on it. You think it's going to be the best thing ever. And then no one buys it and it bombs. Yeah. You like, it bombs for it really yeah. hard. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, whoops. It comes up in meetings over and over again. Like a year later, it'll be like a hindsight meeting and someone will be like, oh, you know, our worst failing item last year was like, these purple jeans and you're in the corner like oh my god I was the one who said we needed purple jeans so
1: you're like I totally push for those purple jeans yeah uh-huh.
0: yeah yeah I like cried about it I was angry yeah okay so something that I think kind of going back to this inv- idea of like okay what jeans are the most environmentally friendly that you could buy I wanted to talk a little bit about rigid versus stretchy because stretchy jeans contain elastin which is yep. a microplastic Yep. it's It's not biodegradable, so it's going to sit in the landfill forever. Forever. And it sheds microplastics every time it's washed. And you also, especially if they're the cheaper kind, which we talked about, you have to wash these stretchy jeans all the time Mm -hmm. because they lose their shape. And so more water wasted, more microplastics in the water supply. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, though, it's like – As we've talked about, stretchy denim fits more people. It's easier. Mm -hmm. And then therefore rigid, I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a harder fit. You don't want to wear it on a long flight. So Mm -hmm. are there advantages to rigid over stretchy? Do you have strong feelings there? I mean, you said you prefer rigid jeans. Why? I
1: prefer rigid for a lot of reasons. For me, it's like rigid is like just kind of magical. And I think that like once you kind of get over the fact that it's like rigid and like once you find a great pair of rigid jeans that, like, really, like, kind of fit your body, they mold to you in a way that, like, stretch doesn't. Rigid, they, like, hold you in and lift you up. Right. It's, like, almost like like a girdle. <laughs> I mean, like, I hate to use the words mm-hmm. that makes it sound like they're, like, constricting, which I guess they are in, like, certain ways. <laughs> but it's just, like, they kind of, like – to hold you in and like pull you back and there's just like a comforting hug for me um, and my body I think and I really like the way that they hold together like I like the stiffness of it I like the way the fabric falls like just nothing looks the same like it when it's in stretch form I mean there are certain brands that have done amazing with comfort stretch you know redone trave denim is like another great one but rigid just, it does things differently than stretch does because that you have to treat it much differently. But to me, it's just like this whole different kind of aesthetic level. And it doesn't have plastic in it, which I just, you know, I just find it like really hard to like want to wear plastic on my body.
0: Well, I agree. And I think when you learn that there's plastic in your jeans, it it's shocking, you know, it's disgusting. Yeah. yeah. It's- You're just like ew. Yeah, I think it's probably really hard to go back. So, yeah. Do you think, in your opinion, one of those fabrics lasts longer than another? Like, it sounds like rigid would last longer than stretch, but is that true?
1: Yeah, it's true. (laughs) Just yeah, it's just it's just constructed better. It's just like the weave. I would say even like a like a poorly constructed rigid would last longer than a poorly constructed stretch fabric just because of how it's like woven together and like the twill line of it and like the ounce weight of it it's like a big thing it's like another like really common misconception is like the weight of denim that you know I used to talk about like all the time and I used to like get in fights with buyers about all the time because you know they just see this like you know denim is you know, classified by, by weight. So you have like 10 ounce denim, 12 ounce denim, 14 ounce denim, 16 ounce denim, etc. And so a lot of people, when they're used to buying kind of like a cheaper product, like I think, you know, before you were at Nasty Gallum or the denim buyer, I would like talk about like the fabrics that we were moving forward with. And you know, they would always ask the ounce and I would always just like dread having to say what it was because I knew I was going to be up for like a fight because they're so used to buying cheaper fabrics where, You could buy, like, a cheaper fabric, and because it's constructed a certain way, it doesn't have the same type of yarns. Um, The yarns aren't as like, finely, like, I don't know, yarned, (laughs) like, together. I don't know, like, how to describe it. Spun. They're not, like, spun together the same way. You could have a fabric that's, like, 10 ounces and rigid, and it could feel like cardboard, and you could have a 14-ounce rigid that's, like, a more premium fabric, and it feels like it drapes. So – It really does depend on like how the fabric is made and constructed more important than the ounce. Like that 10 ounce could feel much heavier than the 14 ounce just because of the cotton that went into making it. You know, if it's not combed, it's not carded, it's not open end versus not. It's just, there's a whole bunch of things that go into making it when you're not like really kind of like used to working with it. You hear the ounce weight and you like freak out. You know, cause I typically use like, like 12 to like 13, 14 ounces when I, when I work with rigid, which sounds like really heavy, but like when it's a really nice piece goods and you're beating it up, which then is not, you know, it just, it, it's not even like an issue. It's like soft and it wraps around your body and, you know, it holds really beautifully. You know, it's like most of my denim, my vintage denim is 50 years old and it still is wearable, you know, and that's all rigid denim.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really valid point. Like, I don't think you're going to see a lot of these like 1999 stretchy jeggings in the thrift store ten years from now. I mean, God, I hope not. No, but that means they're in the landfill. They're
1: in the landfill because because they break and they those stretch pops and then you get those weird wavy lines in the you know running across the fabric Mm -hmm. because the liker broke. So those jeans aren't made to stand the test of time. They're made for immediacy. They're made for a year. They're made for a year of wear. If you're lucky maybe. Yeah.
0: I mean, maybe. Yeah. I think I think we're talking three to six months.
1: Those clothes are so disposable
0: for us now.
1: Yeah. I mean, and that's why you have like eight hundred pairs of them because you you're not just wearing one pair right, and then, right. then it like then you feel like you you made them last longer because you're wearing twelve other pairs at the same time.
0: I know you're wearing a different pair every day, totally every day. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So, okay, shifting gears a little bit here. Trying on jeans is the worst, right? It's so hard. It's the worst, yeah. To find a pair that fits your body.
1: It's like only second worst to
0: like bathing suits. Totally. I agree. I agree. Only thing- <laughs> bathing suits are 100% the worst because, you know, it's, I mean, and I think it's similar to denim. It's physically impossible to make one garment that's going to fit every single person, right? Because some people have a long torso, totally. some people have a short torso, yeah. big boobs, little boob, yeah. big butts, little butts, whatever. So I accept that as just the nature of the beast, but why are so Mm -hmm. many brands, especially like on the more premium end, still so tentative about shifting into plus sizes? Because I have noticed that sort of more like low price point, fast fashion denim brands are offering tons of plus sizes, like gangbusters.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Why are the premium brands staying away from
1: that? I mean, I think that there's a couple different reasons. I think that, you know, first and foremost, because it's really difficult It's not just like you're taking your existing product and like making it bigger, meaning you're just grading it up. Like you have to create an an entirely different pattern. You have to have an entirely different fit model. Absolutely. So like that right there, usually you have have to have like a different pattern maker and someone that has like a lot Mm -hmm. of experience on working with a plus size model. And there's different kind of fit things that you need to – when you're making things to be more size inclusive it's just more challenging and so then that being said a lot of brands i mean even if they're like premium brands like they don't have nearly the same capital as like what you think like they just don't
0: totally i say that all the time that we think all these brands are rolling in dough and they're They're not not. yeah they're they're barely
1: hanging on yeah. They're barely hanging on. And so then you have someone like Torrid, as we know, is like a sister brand of Hot Topic. You know, it's like they have like a lot of room to leverage with like their sister brand Hot Topic. They have their own stores. You know, they also sell to department stores, mm-hmm. which is great. They sell the online stores. So like they have a lot of like uh, different distribution channels, which a lot of like smaller brands, like more contemporary brands just don't have. And they have units behind them because it's expensive to make a plus size jean. And a lot of factories, you know, it's like you're not going to get the same price point from the factories. And a lot of these like smaller brands, you know, even brands that you think are doing really well, they're not doing near the same amount of units as like someone like Fashion Nova. They're just not. They're doing, you know, like a good order for them, like is 1,000 units, 2,000 units. I mean, that's something that does like really well. A typical order, 300 units. Wow. And, and so for like people who aren't up in these
0: units and like doing that kind of analysis all the time, basically if you were to extend sizes, you know, maybe go all the way up to like a women's 30, 34, you would be doubling the number of sizes you had to buy. If you divide 300 units by 10 sizes you're still buying 30 units a piece of each size and you know that's like pretty decent right you could you could sell that you could mm-hmm. have enough inventory to service your your accounts but you're buying 300 units and suddenly you're buying 20 sizes i i mean it, it just doesn't work out you know like you you
1: can't afford to buy all the sizes you have to have a like whole separate customer base and so it's like you have to like mm-hmm. build that and even though i think it's like really valid to build a lot of companies just don't have the capital and they get asked over and over and over and you know i think for the most part you know they genuinely want to be inclusive they just they just can't do it and it's really hard to say that to customers Like, hey, sorry, we just don't have the money. Because, again, like you don't want to break that image of this like everything's great and beautiful and wonderful and, you know, we're living the high life and look at this lifestyle that we're projecting out. You know, like who wants to destroy that? Like no one.
0: Yeah. I mean it's really extensive. And I can say in my experience I worked for a really small startup and, you know, I'm really passionate about being able to dress everyone regardless of their size. I want everybody to have the chance to be stylish and feel mm-hmm. great, right? So my. But it was hard for me to even add two more sizes in our private label product because I had to bring in a special fit tech for it. The factory was just not into it. They were like, you're not buying mm-hmm. enough to make it worth our while, I couldn't buy more because we didn't have the cash flow to buy more. I couldn't put a lot of units into Mm -hmm. these sizes because once again, I only could afford like 300 units per style. And the more sizes we added, the less units we could buy. And then it's like this vicious cycle where, okay, so we still only offer these smaller sizes. The smaller sizes are what are selling. I got to keep buying the smaller sizes. I can't add the larger sizes. Larger-sized people are are bummed out because they can't shop mm-hmm. there or they don't know that we have these sizes. And it's just like then they don't buy them and all of the small sizes sell. And so we're back to buying small sizes. And it's it's like it's really hard. It's really, really hard. There's a reason why like a Torrid can do a massive denim business in, in plus size or, you know, like Target can go hard into plus sizes because they have mm-hmm. they have the money to hire all those people. You know, they have the money – Oh, to totally. market to those customers so that they know they can buy stuff. Yep. That's that's a whole other piece of the puzzle too. And I mean, it's I do believe, and and I to be very transparent, I have worked places where yeah. we weren't expanding sizes because of sizism, because people who work there were assholes, and that is part of the puzzle too. Absolutely, um, definitely, <laughs> I've worked multiple places like that. Sure. Yep. This, I'm not going to say the name of this brand, but I met a brand at. At magic i asked them if they did extended sizing they said the the owner of the company said who by the way looked like she never ate a meal in her whole life said why why would we do that i mean do big people want to buy clothes oh my god <laughs> it's so like, insulting just so insulting yeah. And
1: infuriating
0: yeah i had to leave i was so i was just like wow like that is That's what's wrong with this industry. So sometimes that is a a piece of the puzzle. I will say this. If you see a really large retailer brand that you know is really large, like has that kind of capital and they're not extending sizes, then yeah, there's some sizism going on there or stupidity. Absolutely. Yeah. Sizism and stupidity go hand in hand anyway. So there's probably a mixture of
1: both. Yeah, they really do.
0: But when it's a smaller brand uh, who's not doing it,
1: It's usually because they can't afford to. And and that's just the sad truth. You know, it's like, I I remember, you know, when I worked for Z Cafferici, it's like we did a huge plus size business with um, Torrid. And then, you know, the next company I worked with, it was the same thing because, you know, it was basically the same design team, the same sales team. (laughs) So we just like migrated to this other company and basically did the same thing. You know, I remember being out one night and seeing a girl and she was like, plus size girl. And she was in, you know, a pair of jeans that I had designed. And I was like, Oh, I'm like, Hey, like I work for that brand. Like, how do you like your, how do you like those jeans? And she was just like ecstatic. She's like, nobody makes jeans that like I fit into and that like, like these like make my butt look great. And like, I just feel really good when I put them on. And you know, it's like, honestly, like, like made me cry because like, I'm just like an emotional, just like sappy person. And then and number two, it's just like, you know, like you said earlier, it's like part of the reason that I got into design and that I got into fashion is because like I too believe that like we should really feel good about, you know, what we put on our bodies. And like, I love being a part of that. Like I love being a part of a woman's day where she puts on something that I design and she feels really good about herself. I think that that's, you know, that's like a plus about working and In fashion, there's a lot of negatives and like we've talked about a lot of them. But that, that's always really nice to like hear that feedback. Like I feel great when I put on these things and you're like, cool, that's part of the reason I do it. Thanks. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I
0: mean, that's – for those of us who are passionate about fashion and style, like this is why we're in it. Yeah. It's it's the best part of the job. I know we're not out there like saving baby seals or curing cancer, but there is – this satisfaction to it
1: yeah there is to like feeling like you know you contributed to someone's happiness I mean I do think that fashion contributes to a lot of unhappiness in people but like that's like a whole other thing we can talk about like a different episode
0: (laughs) we could talk about that for hours yes
1: Hours and hours. But, like, hearing those stories from, like, people that, like, say, like, I, I genuinely feel good when I put on this, like, pair of pants that you designed is, like, it's nice. And, like, you know you worked hard on it. You know that, like, you did the extra fittings, that, you know, the whole team was involved. Like, you know all the steps that it went through. You were there for that whole product's life. It's like seeing a child graduate from high school. You're like, yay, I did it. I did that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody knows I did that. <laughs> oh
0: hey it's me again (laughs) once again this is part two of three denim episodes you know I'm gonna be really honest with you I kind of do this podcast by the seat of my pants and so sometimes I don't know how something's going to turn out until I edit it and that's kind of what happened here just had so much great content with Michelle. So the next episode, we'll be talking about the future of denim and its sustainability. You can see why I didn't want to rush through that. I mean, that's some big stuff, right? And as I've mentioned before, there is some optimism to be felt there. We just have to use our buying power as customers to push the big denim brands and the big denim retailers into adopting these new, more sustainable processes. So I can't wait to cover that in the next episode. As Michelle mentioned, when you buy a pair of premium jeans, this can frequently, but not always, mean that those jeans were made in the United States. In fact, most jeans come from other countries, and you guessed that, right? I mean, you've been listening to this podcast for a while, so you knew. Bangladesh has been picking up more and more market share in the past few years. In 2017, Bangladesh shipped $508 million worth of denim apparel to the U.S., and it's been growing since then. I mean, who knows what will happen this year with so many orders being canceled and everyone shifting into sweatpants and nap dresses. It must be a crazy time to work in the denim industry, and I do not envy anyone who's trying to put those pieces together right now. About 25% of the denim sold in the United States comes from China. It used to be more, but China has found itself losing market shares to someone else, someone who might surprise you. Mexico. Another quarter of our denim comes from Mexico. And in fact, roughly 40% of men's and boys' jeans in the U.S. come from Mexico, where brands like Levi's, Lee, and Wrangler have supply chains set up. According to a report released by the United States Department of Agriculture, Mexico is the seventh largest exporter of denim worldwide, and it's held that spot for 15 years. While the costs tend to be higher in Mexico than China, the savings in terms of shipping and shorter delivery times make up for it, so more denim is slowly moving into Mexico. So again, don't know what's happening with denim in 2020, but it would be interesting to watch in 2021 to see if more denim moves into Mexico. The balance of our jeans come from Italy, those are more premium, and Pakistan, those are less expensive. India and Vietnam also round out the lower-priced options. Most of the time, and I mean most, not always, if a pair of jeans cost over $200, they're made in the USA. But that doesn't mean the fabric came from the US. We just don't make fabrics in the US anymore. The last selvedge denim mill in the United States, White Oak Cone Mills in Greensboro, North Carolina, closed in 2017. I know you're asking yourself, what is selvedge denim? Okay, well here, I had to look it up too. I knew it was good, but I didn't know why. I'll say that. So selvedge denim is more premium. That is true. And it's considered superior because it won't unravel there's a clean edge that's visible when the jeans are cuffed, and it's thought to be superior in terms of durability because the ends of the fabric are woven together and won't fray. So basically, selvedge denim is more premium because it's longer lasting. And so this is something we definitely want to pay attention to. If we want to buy less jeans and want them to last longer, Selvedge denim is something we want to look for. You can still get that kind of fabric, but rather than being made in the United States, it's coming from Italy, Turkey, and Japan. In terms of regular old, less high-quality denim, only one very small textile mill remains open in the U.S. It's called Mount Vernon Mills, and it's in Malden, South Carolina. So we're definitely not making a ton of denim fabric in the United States anytime soon, right? Even made-in-the-USA jeans aren't fully made in the USA, like not only is the fabric probably imported as we just discussed, so are the zippers, buttons, snaps, labels, I don't know, did it hit all the parts of a pair of jeans there? Anything else you can think of, probably also imported. The drawbacks to importing our clothes and the materials is that it increases the carbon footprint that our garments create. Now, it's incredibly difficult to change that at this point because the textile and garment industry has virtually left the United States and rebuilding it would take I mean it would take a generation and in the meantime other countries have built entire economies that rely on making our clothes so we're not going to flip a switch next week and suddenly everything's going to be made here we're not bringing the jobs back in a couple months or even a couple years so once again we're talking about carbon footprint and being mindful of that in terms of our clothing what we can do as consumers is buy less and make what we have last longer you knew i was going to say that (laughs) okay let's talk about uniqlo for a minute i wanted to update you on what i've learned about the company and its practices uniqlo is a big business the founder tadashi Yanai, was ranked japan's richest man in 2020 and he's actually held that spot for years. The company has about 1,300 stores worldwide and I was like kind of disappointed by that number but then for context, there are 675 Gap stores in the US. So, okay, bigger than the Gap, right? I mean, we're talking just the Gap, we're not saying Gap plus Old Navy plus Banana Republic. Then we're getting into more than 3,000 stores but just talking about the Gap. According to Good On You, which is a great place to learn about a retailer's practices, they have about 2,000 retailers and brands in their database, Uniqlo has received a score of it's a start for its environmental practices because it's taken some steps in the right direction. For example, it has a repair and reuse program in place and it uses some eco-friendly materials. There's still a long way to go. It also has a policy approved by Canopy Style to manage forestry in its supply chain and it does reduce water in some spots along the way once again there's still a long way to go but this is more than a lot of brands we buy from regularly are doing uniqlo's labor rating however is not good enough it scores 31 to 40 percent in the fashion transparency index basically saying they just aren't being very transparent which to me is never a good sign they don't publicly list all of their suppliers there's no evidence that the company ensures a living wage for its supply chain workers. You know, I don't like that. However, the brand did disclose adequate policies to protect suppliers from the impacts of COVID-19 by fulfilling orders and basically hashtag paying up. That's great news. Especially when we compare it to a lot of its other competitors who are just canceling and not paying, being assholes all the time but they have not published any policies about protecting the workers themselves from COVID. So that would mean like access to healthcare or any contingency plans in case of an outbreak. So in summary, Uniqlo is not the worst by far, and they seem to be trying to do better. They score points for not being total assholes about cancellations, but there's still progress to be made. No matter what, you shouldn't be buying things you don't need from anyone, including Uniqlo, But they can be a resource when you need a new pair of jeans or a nice, long-lasting hoodie. Yes, your money is as powerful as your vote. But let's not be voting all day every day by buying stuff we don't need. Right? (laughs) Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. I know I said that I would be debuting the Ask Amanda advice column in this episode, But it'll be pushing to next week. Once again, guys, I'm just flying by the seat of my pants over here. But it's really a nap dress. It's not pants. (laughs) So if you have a burning question about what to buy or how the system works, drop me a line at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com. You can also just send me a message on Instagram, which is way more convenient, at clotheshorsepodcast. If you like what you're hearing, Please subscribe and leave a rating slash review on Apple Podcasts. Like, let's get this out there, right? This week, we had like the most shares we've had on Instagram. It's so exciting to see people I don't know posting about Clothes Horse. Yay! We're currently available on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. I think I got them all there. But you can also stream all of our episodes via our website, ClothesHorsePodcast.com. Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye!